0: Welcome to the Safe and Sound Protocol Podcast, a polyvagal theory informed therapy. I'm your host, Joanne McIntyre. Here we talk everything polyvagal and SSP related. Dr. Porges has provided us with a revolutionary framework for understanding the connection between our autonomic nervous system and behavior. The SSP Acoustic Intervention is an exciting new therapy helping people all around the world. Welcome to episode 23. Please enjoy this very timely discussion about the impact of screen time on the developing brain. I am speaking with doctors Rachel Sharman and Michael Nagel from the School of Psychology at Sunshine Coast University, Queensland, Australia, about their new book, Becoming Autistic, how technology is altering the minds of the next generation. This is such an important topic. We discuss research about the impact of screen time on attention processing, empathy, groupthink, body image, mental health, and suicide. We also cover the impact of screen time on developing theory of mind, dopamine, and addiction behavior, and a new concept virtual autism. My goal for today's conversation is to help increase awareness about the impact of screen time and support parents, individuals and communities in starting a conversation about establishing screen time guidelines. So so welcome. I have um, Dr. Rachel Sharman and Dr. Michael Nagel with me today on the podcast. So let's unpack this topic. Um, But before we get started, let me have you just share a little bit of information about yourselves kind of your background the kind of research you do and then we can go in and talk about your your new book so maybe um michael did you want to yeah share sure sure.
1: um uh where to start um we were talking earlier i'm from canada originally i've been in australia since 1995. Uh, my background is in educational psychology so it's a nice marriage with rachel's work in psychology um, the research I've been doing and been involved with has typically been around um, the developing pediatric brain. So I've been really interested in, um, you know, what goes on between the ears of our children and, and adolescents, and which is a beguiling topic to begin with. Um, but probably in the last decade or so, um, I've been in some of the other books I've written. I've sort of prefaced this notion that. Um, the whole idea about the influence of technology on the developing brain is something we should be mindful of, uh, pun intended, because um, we don't really understand yet understand the true implications of um, what amounts to intensive and excessive screen time. Um, and of course, you know, any good researcher would say um, there's a difference between causation and correlation. You know, we're constantly reminded of that. And uh, for your listeners who uh, may not be quite familiar with that terminology, said. Basically, we can't take children and put them in an experimental setting and see if it hurts them. <laughs> we, we can't get ethics approval for that anymore. Um, so I've been looking at studies over the last decade, suggesting look, there's some real issues and challenges around uh, all aspects of technology in terms of all aspects of development, and so. That's kind of been my interest over the last decade. That, and in, in relation to stress and anxiety in, in young people. Um, and Rachel and I have been working together. I don't know how many years now at this Ooh, institution.
2: Seven or eight, at least. At least, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. And so this was a perfect marriage because we've done uh, work together before in different areas. So we work well together. And uh, I'll leave Rachel to introduce herself now that I just rabbited on. A lot of coffee in my system, so I. <coughs> I and if I start talking fast, just tell me to slow down. Okay. Thanks,
2: Joanne. Uh, Yeah, so my name is Rachel Sharman. Uh, I have, I'm very unstandard academic, actually. I I came out of a Bachelor of Arts degree and went and worked in the real world for about 15 years before I came back to academia. So my background is in child protection, uh, adolescent forensics, disability, genetic research, a whole range of different things before I came back um, to academia. Very much like Mike, I have a, a huge interest in the um, developing brain. So my, uh, my area is actually neuropsychology uh, and, the de- and the child brain in particular. Not, not interested in adults. You're all very boring to me. So <laughs> <laughs> your brain's developed. It's done. I often use the analogy of setting concrete versus, you know, set concrete. So the developing brain's a marvellous, marvellous little organ. It's still working its way and wiring itself to the environment and figuring out what it wants to do. So we've got some potential to do some real good which is why you always hear people banging on about early intervention. But there's also the potential to do some, you know, some quite tremendous damage to that developing brain. You know, once you hit about 25 and the concrete's set, you know, whatever, (laughs) there's some level of neuroplasticity, but it's really nowhere near as strong as that, as that marvellous little organ, um, you know, sort of trying to figure its way out into the world so that's really been my research for the last um several years i've done a lot of work in um, as i said genetic research but just as just influences on that developing brain so diet exercise uh, and more m- most recently nature immersion and um, and indeed uh, digital screen technologies
1: mm-hmm.
0: excellent excellent so that's going to lead me into. I'd love for you to both of you to share your thinking around how you actually come up with the title of the book, you know, becoming autistic. How technology is altering the minds of the next generation.
1: Uh, the, the initial working title was the autistication of a generation, but it was a little bit mm, too cumbersome, I suppose, in terms of what it actually meant and how people might conceptualize it. And so we toyed with what that actually meant at its core, and um, and basically came up with this idea, um, becoming autistic, uh, with a view that that would be uh, provocative, but not, not as a pejorative. So, you know, when people look at it and they read the back cover, we're not suggesting there's anything nefarious going on in terms of parents or anything like that, just that um, we were interested in, in some of the research available to us, suggesting that uh, digital technologies are having an impact on children that's really how everything unfolded so and, and I think probably because Rachel had and she correct me if I'm wrong she had alerted me to some um, some research was done in Europe and some studies and, and individuals who were coining the term virtual autism mm-hmm. which I hadn't heard before but I thought that speaks volumes to what we're actually uh, what we're actually write about in the book
2: Yeah, so I'm probably a little bit stronger than Mike on this. So looking at the actual um, neuropsychological literature, I can assure you there are some neuroscientists out there that are quite concerned about this. So we have recent research looking at what they're now calling autism-like symptoms. So they're sort of dancing around it a little bit. Uh, As Mike said, we've already had the term uh, virtual autism coined and picked up by psychiatrists as well as psychologists around the world. Uh, this is off the back of longitudinal research, looking at children who have what they call intensive early screen exposure, particularly in the early years of life. And I mean, babies, <laughs> so not even, you know, little tiny babies. Um, and then sort of displaying what uh, researchers are calling autism like symptoms or virtual autism. And then they take these kiddies and they remove the screens they train the parents in, in interactive play really getting the parents to actually, you know, physically interact with their children in real life lots of, you know, eye gazing and looking at the kids and emotion mirroring and things like that. And of course this so called virtual autism disappears um so this is creating a bit of a challenge and I I think in terms of that working title what Mike and I were both also interested in looking at so you've got that at sort of the micro level but what happens at the macro level what happens when you have a whole generation which is losing skills in what we call theory of mind so the ability to understand the perspective of other people And, you know, when you see what's happening on social media, I think there's some really good psychological theories that help people understand why we're seeing almost a generation of younger people who are really struggling to understand other people's perspectives, to accept them, and to move away from black and white thinking. And black and white thinking is a developmental thing. All teenagers do it. You did it. I did it. (laughs) We all did it, okay? But we're seeing a bit of an inability to shift from that. And there's a range of different things that happen when you live your life virtually or online, or you have too much immersion that we think psychology can help explain what is going on here. Why are we seeing this in an an entire generation? So we we did also wanna take a generational look at what happens when you have a child, poorer theory of mind, poorer social skills, not being able to interact with friends in real life. What does that look like 10, 20 years later?
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm, lovely. And I think you, you both do a lovely job in the opening chapters of the book of kind of talking a little bit in a very accessible way about, about brain development, your early brain development, and in particular the adolescent brain development, what is typically normal, and then what's going to happen when you throw something like being immersed within a world of engaging with, with, with screens, how is that going to in, impact that? So I wonder if you just sort of unpack that a little bit about kind of what some of those sort of brain development things that are happening? Do
1: you want to start? <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to go first? <laughs> uh, it, well, purely from a developmental standpoint, a lot of people probably don't realize, you know, that for neuro, full neural maturation doesn't happen to one our third decade of life. and so. I, I suppose one of the most critical things in relation to our book is that experiences matter. Mm-hmm. So you know, the we can talk about nature and nurture, but it's kind of a moot point. One doesn't override that; they they work in tandem with each other. So the experiences we have through adolescence will have an imprint on our minds, you know, and, and how our brains function and how they're wired. And so that leads to the 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 bigger topic is okay. So if if you're if you're living in a virtual world, if you're ensconced in social media and anything else, what are the long term implications of that in a, at a time when your brain is not set in concrete, as Rachel has alluded to earlier, in the sense that this is something that is forming and developing over a period of time? Um, and I, again, for me, it, it's the realization too that a lot of people don't consider that it's only been since about 2007 or eight where we've been able to hold a device in our hands called a smartphone. So, you know, longitudinally that's a very short period of time yet it's been so pervasive. We have we are only beginning to see the impact of that. So I think the key point for listeners is the realization that, you know, when someone approaches you, they're 17 years old and and they're physically better built than you are. my, My son included, I mean, when he was 16, he used to annoy me because you know, he had a six pack and, and, I was drinking a six pack, but (laughs) he was, for all intents and purposes, as a 16 year old kid, he was built like a young man. Mm -hmm. Um, But what's going on between his ears is vastly different. So I think that's, for me, that's, that's the, uh, crux of the matter is that we know experiences matter. And so what are the experiences that young people are spending a good proportion and increasingly amount of time on virtual worlds and screen devices?
2: Yeah, and I think, look, my my interest in this is particularly, I mentioned before theory of mind, and in fact, just the other day I stumbled across yet another article looking at screen time use and deficits in what we call theory of mind and this is a bit of a difficult concept for some people to grasp because hopefully if your brain has developed normally you would have developed theory of mind around three or four years of age so you don't remember what it was like to live without that you know you can't sort of really project back and go oh yes I remember what it was like when I was two and I couldn't understand other people Um, but in its simplest form theory of mind is just that I understand you have a different mental state to me so I might want a cup of coffee But I say, hey, Joanne, do you want a cup of tea, coffee, orange juice, water, you know, (laughs) because I understand that you don't necessarily share my thoughts, share my beliefs, share my understanding. So that's the really simple theory of mind stuff. And like I said, around the age of three or four, we see an explosion in this in most kitties and they can really start to actually appreciate that other people have a different perspective to theirs and that there's, you know, if if they're looking at something, they could be looking at a different side of something or looking at it in a different way. It's also a marvelous skill that actually gets better as we age. So it's one of the few, um, it it is one of the few skills brain functions that actually doesn't deteriorate with age. In Mm -hmm. fact, it gets better and better and better with experience. So, there really is some truth for that um, wisdom development in older people because the more experience they've had, the more perspectives they're exposed to, the more they understand why people think differently about different things. They do develop a sense of, I suppose, a bigger picture sense of wisdom as they get older and they're much, uh, they're much better at actually sort of working with people, you know, because you, you want to bring people with you if you've, got, if you've got an idea or an issue you want to help them with. Um, so theory of mind gets very sophisticated as we get older and and it gets better so I suppose one of the things I'm particularly concerned about and what psychologists around the world are, are sort of discovering is that the more you have this social media immersion sort of the narrower if you will your theory of mind is becoming and it seems to stay there so we get very rigid thinking we get very um I suppose obsessed with our own opinion. We know that social media then feeds, you know, feeds you your own opinion back. We know it's a massive, big echo chamber. So then we end up with a teenager who it's not just they don't know whether you want a cup of tea or coffee. <laughs> the problem is um, they can become quite anxious when their when their viewpoint is challenged because they've never actually had that happen before. And they can become quite sort of tribal. We're starting to see this formation of identity groups and all the rest of it about you know um, I think this and this is right and and that's it and I mean it was it was really interesting a few years ago I was walking past some students here at the university and they were having a bit of a debate and one of them said so that's your opinion and they said yeah but my opinion's right (laughs) I just I so wanted to stop and interrupt I thought I best not Uh, I just thought how interesting like your opinion has now become truth and I think that's a really interesting development that, as I said, is typical for teenagers, but it seems to be becoming more prevalent, more intense, and a little bit harder to sort of get around. So now we're wondering, as Mike said, I mean, we're only what, 2007, 2008, all of this business of living 15 over, years into it. 15 years. What these people are going to look like by the time they're our age, who, who would know? It'll be very interesting to see. Mm -hmm. And because
1: it has societal implications. Clearly, if people can't get along and you can't put yourself in someone else's shoes, that makes for great polarisation. And and we see that in our current societies, you know, this notion that I'm right, you're wrong, and never the twain shall meet. There's no middle ground. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you give some nice examples in the book about that, of different events that happen and how polarised people are, and there's not that debate of looking at somebody else's view that, you know, and and as you said, that echo chamber effect where like Facebook, social media feed back to you, other people who think exactly the same. So then you kind of get that group think mentality that, well, all well, these people think the same, so the rest of the world must think the same. So
1: And, and, and no mm. intent to find a middle ground. Mm. No no intent to compromise. It's, it's almost like, you know, as the theory of mind deteriorates, empathy deteriorates. We're not, not going to find a common ground. I'm right, you're wrong, that's the end of it. And because I'm right, that's the way things should be. And that just does not make for a very good society long term.
2: and I was reading something. I actually made a comment on an article that popped up on one of our um, academic news websites called The Conversation. And incredibly, it was American authors. And they were talking about what happens to friendship if you have a difference of opinion over the COVID vaccine. Now, I am a pro-vaccine. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> there's no doubt about that and there was a line in there that I found fascinating these were apparently researchers into relationships and friendships and basically the line was oh well if you have a big falling out obviously the friendship dissolution is almost inevitable and I really balked at that and I actually wrote on the site I said hey hang on a minute I've got friends who are anti-vaxxers or or vaccine hesitant I'm also atheist I have very good friends in fact of 30 years who are extremely religious you dissolve a friendship over a disagreement (laughs) are you serious and yeah we we use some other examples in the book where I guess from you know again our age and our generation and our point of view uh you know the the whole Brexit thing which was just amazing people refusing to speak to family members you know actually massive family fallouts over a political difference Uh, you know I'm just how do you get through life with people if you cannot tolerate a point of view that's you know, not yours. How is that going to play out in relationships, in marriages, in friendships? And one of the things we mention in the book is the rise and rise of loneliness, um, so much so that the United Kingdom now has a minister for loneliness. I mean, can you believe that? (laughs) It's a national government department. Um, And part of the issue is people, yeah, basically deplatforming one another and dissolving friendships over something that once upon a time might have made for a quick debate and then you just would have moved on if you realised you had to
1: agree to disagree. Or familial relationships. Um, yeah, you know, a lot of the reports out of the US, uh, you know, after Donald Trump became president was the breakup of families purely mm-hmm. because of different political ideologies and political beliefs. No middle ground. And, and you see this played out uh, over and over and over again. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think this led this segues lovely into just like sober bullying, you know, that mm-hmm. not only is there no middle ground, but the the um the response and the bullying and those things that 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 kind of that happen in that in that space now Hmm.
2: yeah look somewhat against my better judgment and certainly against what media and marketing want me to do i actually um i actually deleted my twitter account a few weeks ago not because anything happened nothing happened at all but i just feel twitter has now just become a mob witch hunting exercise it's it's unbelievable it's It really um, doesn't constructively help society at all at any level. In fact, it's quite destructive. So, yes, someone comes out with a different point of view, heaven help you. And a whole bunch of people on Twitter is probably the worst, um, but, yeah, there are many other avenues for cyberbullying, uh, mm. and they just get sort of piled on and deplatformed and removed or abused. And uh, we use some examples in our book, particularly of, um, you know, not more journalists in Australia, you know, mm. where, where a journalist dares, <laughs> heaven forbid, dares to do their job. Uh, and question a politician about something or what have you, and then just trolled viciously from here to Timbuktu. And, you know, we've actually had journalists leave their job, um, actual media broadcasters just going, I just don't have the mental energy for this anymore. It's just so destructive and so nasty. So, I, yeah, again, this is, all this does is drive down free speech. It just increases that tribalism and identity politics, and it doesn't help anyone develop their theory of mind different ways of looking at things or heaven forbid a, a debate that fate you know sort of focuses on those shades of gray rather than the black and white extremes
1: it's mm-hmm. almost like compromise has become a bad word
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. exactly um so then you also talk about bullying like in like adolescence you know mm-hmm. and the impact of of that and um mm-hmm. and the impact of that on 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 mental health and anxiety And then on suicide as well, Mm -hmm. that you you talk about some of the research regarding um, that. Um, So do you want to comment on that at all? Just to say that, you know, once upon a
2: time, and I think I mentioned this in the book, a a 10-year-old, you know, presenting with suicidal ideation was unheard of. And and if Mm -hmm. they did, it was usually some kind of very significant psychiatric problem, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, and a very rare one at that. Um, But yes, I I think I quoted a pediatrician that I was talking to who said that she's just not even surprised now that you've got nine, 10 year olds walking through the door constantly, because they really don't have the social skills to be able to manage this, you know, they walk through the door they've got that smartphone. Um, the bullying follows them from the school gate into their home late at night. It, it's just relentless. And quite frankly, if a 50-year-old media broadcaster can't handle it, you can't possibly expect a nine-year-old to handle it. That's completely unreasonable. Um, so, yes, we, look, the research tells us we know there's an uptick in, um, in suicides and suicidal ideation in, in increasingly younger and younger age groups. As Michael said before, we have to be careful with correlation equaling cause. There's no doubt about that. Um, but I think one, one can be deeply suspicious. Let's put it that way. Um, that social media is playing a part here.
1: Well, even the fact that you know kids will use uh, social media for co-rumination. You know that they, they get online and talk about their troubles and anxieties. But, and in fact, I came across a um, a couple of years back in my son's high school. I was doing a presentation, and um, a uh, emergency room physician told me that she was concerned about the fact that they were coming across. Um, adolescent girls arriving in the emergency ward simultaneously uh, who had cut themselves because they had actually been talking online about doing this so they could meet together and discuss their woes face to face. So social media and the technology has created a 24-7 platform for any array of, of situations that you know, previous generations dealt with in isolation and, and it wasn't exacerbated by this, by the echo chamber or the platform of likes and dislikes and everything else that come come uh, part and parcel with most measures of social media, it's it's amazing to think how some people look at that thumbs up tick like and and just embody that like I'm it 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 validates my worth, uh, which is really pernicious. I, I think probably one of the worst things that's come out of social media is this whole notion of you can like or dislike. Somebody, or you can friend or unfriend mm. someone. I mean, the fact is I, I just laugh and someone says, I've got a thousand friends. Like, no, no, you've got probably 998 acquaintances that barely know you. You might have two friends. Um, so it's just the, the whole area around technology usage and the platforms that are on there is, as I said, or as Rachel said, uh, we sh- should be deeply suspicious of. Um, while there are some, there are clearly some benefits, I think probably, uh, in terms of children and adolescents, uh, we'd be mindful to look at um, the issues and challenges that that seem to be oh, m- increasingly come out in the literature as, as saying, look, there are some real issues here.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I thought this might, I was just thinking, you know, um, another example that you give in, in the book, um, and, but your own child Rachel, but then I think you know, that might lead into like, internet addiction that yeah. now that's been accepted into the DSM manual. But you give a nice example of even your, I think your was it your daughter who during COVID that you were letting have a bit more screen time and then it was getting to the point where she was almost like obsessive. And then when you take it away, then the tantrums that that yeah. um that happened, and I know that story is not unique. To your own as, as working with, as, a, as a clinician myself, that, um, that it's a, an issue that many families struggle with around around that, that eye patch. But if you want, I just want to yeah. share your experience
2: and what you did. Yeah, um, absolutely, because I think, I think what happened is, is very typical and, and, and very also neurodevelopmentally typical. So it's actually my son, but that's... that's I'm sorry. That <laughs> doesn't matter. Um, but, yes, look, like everyone, we got caught by surprise with COVID. We all had to work from home. It was very difficult. My partner cannot work from home, so it was left to me. I can. He couldn't. Um, so, yeah, the bulk of the childcare fell to me. So, yes, unfortunately, the iPad got trotted out. Um, And it was really interesting because when I realised what he was watching, um, a lot of these videos, and and they're they're very child-focused videos, you've got some sort of internet child stars out there, if you like, who make these videos. And there's a few things going on. They're using uh, a technique that we call intermittent reinforcement. So this is the same technique that gamblers and pokey machines use. So basically you kind of get a reward or a reinforcement unexpectedly So what happens is you keep looking for that reward. So we know that everyone falls into this trap. This is why people become addicted to gambling and things like that. So a lot of these um, sort of so-called child stars and and, and programs and all the rest of it, they were very well done. I mean, there's lots of colour and movement and they're very exciting and all that sort of stuff. And then every now and then you get a little burst of something and a little reward. And I thought, oh, this is really sneaky. And um, on top of that, they're also marketing. So there's just constant bombardment of, you know, using certain toys and advertising and all the rest of it. Um, so a lot of this stuff is very low quality in terms of how it's actually going to help your child. But yes, absolutely, he became I think almost semi-addicted, and it became highly problematic as as the lockdown started to release and we started to be able to you know you know be a bit more normal <laughs> in our functioning. Um, removing the iPad got very very difficult, resulted in lots of tantrums. So eventually we thought, no, we've just got to go cold turkey with this. So the iPad um, broke off oh. <laughs> in, in adult language. <laughs> And could possibly be repaired. Um, And we got what we call an extinction burst. So, of course, being from psychology, I knew what would happen. So the tantrums actually escalated and they got worse, and there was a lot of very bad behavior. Um, Fortunately, this only went on for about a week. And we had to kind of reorient him to toys and outside and, and playgrounds and people and all that sort of stuff. And sure enough, after about two or three weeks, you know, he was completely back to normal. Now that's great when you're three, and that's going to work really well when you're three. So anyone listening out there with you know three or four year olds, follow this lead, please. <laughs> you'll, you'll you'll thank me in ten years time. So the
1: message is: break the iPad <laughs> or turn off <laughs> or
2: whatever it may Hide be. Hide the router. Hide the router. The problem we have is 10 years later, and if you've now got a 15-year-old who's addicted to video games and screens and all the rest of it, a couple of different issues there, it hasn't been an addiction that's been going or being developed for weeks and months, it's been developed over years now the brain is wiring itself around that it's expecting that and you've also now got a six foot two male who's going to throw a table through a window when you try and take their their um, gaming off them and this is precisely what's happening and precisely why it's in the dsm and even if you talk to the local coppers on the ground the number of times they get called out um, to particularly teenage males behaving very badly simply because their gaming is being shut off by their parents or there's some you know sensible limits being put around, it's completely out of control out there. Um, and you know, even boys as young as ten are doing this. It's just that once they've gone through puberty, they're a lot stronger and a lot more dangerous. So you know, the mm. police get called, and their ability to sort of emotionally self-regulate and all of those sorts of things and accept their parents, you know, boundaries, um, is becoming weaker and weaker. So, yeah, again, uh, I think Mike and I have both been in a situation where a fifteen-year-old has been wheeled into us. Um, and it's sort of like, here, fix this. And you go, mate, I needed to see that kid 10 years ago. There's, this brain has now wired around this. There's expectancies there. And it's not impossible, but, boy, boy do you have an uphill battle on your hands now.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I, I can't add anything further. Mm. just spot on. Um, yeah.
0: And I love that you add that, Rachel, that mm. the brain is wild to expect this now. The brain and the body, the body's used to that engagement with the game, the fingers clicking, the whole visual, the brain is, yeah, so
1: it just began. The elevation of dopamine with the reward system like like, yeah. wow, it yes, it's an ongoing. Yes. Um, yes.
0: And you talk about that as part of the addiction process, is that sort of biological process of that anticipatory dopamine. It's actually like the, the lead up to whatever you actually get is actually more, it gives us more, pleasure that when we actually get the product it was mm. more like the lead up like lead up to whether it's so it's like the, yeah, the lead up to or what might pop up next in my facebook feed or what might it just continues yes. us yes. going
1: there's an alert there's an there's alert an i have an alert thing there, the phone. It's, oh, it's very bing bing yes. happy days let's it's, see what it is it's nothing yes. it's a bill yeah, it's, it's
2: it's addictive. And look, I I think it's worth just picking up on that because some of your listeners might not understand this. But so the concept of anticipatory dopamine is is simply that we know the dopamine rises even more so in and dopamine's your your feel good pleasure chemical. Okay, so it's your own little internal rush. <laughs> so when you go on a roller coaster or you have a really good time, lots of dopamine. It's basically telling you do that again. This is a good experience. Reapproach that task. So it's there for a very good evolution. Reason, you know, when something good happens, you find something amazing. You know, you're walking through the forest, you find the water you've been looking for. You get this massive dopamine rush. Um, so that's being capitalised by, uh, uh, you know, gaming and internet sort of things to to basically try and increase that anticipatory dopamine. That's what they're trying to do. So most listeners will probably understand that. You know, the smell of baking bread, that that sort of atmosphere in a stadium before kickoff. Um, you know, even, even sort of the lead up to sex, for heaven's I sake. I was just going to say <laughs> mating. <laughs> mating. Mating. Absolutely. It's that anticipatory dopamine that really gives you the rush. So a lot of these uh, video games and... sorts of internet technologies and even as mike says something as simple as that ding of the phone Mm -hmm. it's it's you know it's an anticipation oh what's that oh oh, i must go i must go and approach that task i must look at my message i must play this game and looking for that reward at all times um so yeah you're taking the human brain and you're kind of manipulating it via digital technologies to get people hooked
1: and i think it's important for your listeners to realize that you know the people in silicon valley design apps and everything that go on this they're not doing it in an altruistic measure to improve humanity. They're, they're looking to get people to look, act, engage with the devices more, incentivize them in some way, shape, or form. So they are doing it because it's, there's a monetary um, product at the end. The more you look at these things, the more you use them, the more likely is you are to spend money. So this, devices are not designed to improve humanity. They're designed for you to use them and use them repeatedly.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think you give the example in the book too that those people aren't sending their, you know, the, the kids to schools where they're learning; they're all engaged in devices that so they're actually taking and sending them to more kind of alternative schools where they're getting outside and playing a more experiential sort of learn, learning.
2: It's fascinating, isn't it? So that that news started to leak. And I- think a lot of the tech heads at silicon valley even tried to suppress it they just went yep no we don't let our kids have these devices till they're 13 14 20. (laughs) You know um, that news started to break a few years ago and that yes these all these people were sending their own kids off to more nature-based schools and out Outside learning and things like that, and banning them, like just outright banning them from having internet access or smartphones or all the rest of it. And I think when you see that, you've just got to understand that they know something we don't. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that they're not letting their own kids touch this stuff is is very, very interesting. I often
1: show pictures to parents when I'm doing presentations of Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, who both were very restrictive in what their children could use and, and the amount of time, it, and if they could use it. Uh, mm-hmm. Reportedly. I'm, or I mean, it could be an urban myth. Who knows? But I like it. Um, uh, someone asked Steve, "God when his child would have an i? When will you give your child an iPad?" And he said, "I won't." So I think there are many stories about people in the tech industry, as Rachel's saying, that simply have who are in the know very much realize that the last thing I want to do is inundate them with technology.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think it's part of our job to, to help empower parents that it's okay to say no.
1: That. Mm-hmm. Well that's that, that's really interesting because more often than not I uh, when I speak at schools I have parents saying well what do I do and it's like and I, again I'm not critiquing parents I mean I wish I was a perfect parent but more often mm-hmm. than not my kids were teenagers I had to run and look at something I wrote to understand what the hell they're doing but the, the simple fact of the matter is that um, technology is not a right you know mm-hmm. it, it's no more a right than when I was 15 or 16 having a car to drive it, it's a privilege and and again not to critique parents but you you are within your right as a parent to say no but i think the sooner you do that the better and if if you're going to engage in that sort of um approach with teens you're going to have to build up incrementally or slowly and 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 start giving some evidence you know just because and more importantly model the behavior you expect i think that's one of the most important things because i can't tell you how many times i've seen parents on their devices in the midst of their children and wondering why they can't get their children off the devices. So, if you want them to switch off, you have to switch off as well.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think parents support each other, you
1: know. Absolutely. About, about you know, that. Don't their, beat yourself about,
0: up. Exactly, exactly, about putting those sort of restrictions on and stuff. And mm-hmm.
1: I hope that came across in the book because we yes. didn't want parents to beat themselves up and think no. they're doing something wrong because at the end of the day, as we mentioned earlier, you know, the devices have been in our hands for about 15 years. Mm-hmm. We're learning. It's been a steep learning curve. And, and no, I don't think anyone really truly understood or realized how quickly the technology would advance. I mean, you can hand a, a, an iPhone to a one-year-old and they can manipulate it and mm-hmm. make it work. I mean, mm-hmm. when I was, you know, in university, uh, I won't give away my age, but that being said, if you wanted computer work, you had to know the language of the computer. You had to tell it what to do. Now it's so intuitive; a one-year-old could just start swiping, doing things, and bang. We had no idea what that was, how that was going to evolve or eventuate. and consequently, we're only beginning to learn what are the what are the implications of that technology, and that's kind of where. You know come full circle that's what we we're trying to get through in the book and so the parents don't beat themselves up and think oh my gosh i've created something well no no but there are things you can do
2: why well, didn't you do some research a while ago actually asking sort of upper primary school kids oh yes, yeah, yeah this is fascinating
1: yeah sorry um uh I, I, Prior to COVID, um, I was involved, and, and Rachel and I have been involved with an organization that does presentations for um, teachers, psychologists, anyone involved with um, youth, and um, they were doing presentations for high school age kids um, and as well, and this was uh, held in Sydney, and prior to the actual um presentation, which was all around technology and, and how young people engage with technology. We took an instrument that was designed uh, at a university here in Queensland, modified it to get students sort of understanding of technology, how they use it, what they thought the problems were, all that sort of thing. And we, we had a, a really good data pool, of something like 1800 1900 respondents, this was sent out to, to school students prior to the presentations, and the presentations themselves had students in person, but also was broadcast to anywhere from five to 10,000 students across Australia and New Zealand. But what was really interesting, there was a particular set of questions around uh, smartphone use. Mm-hmm. And we asked uh, the students to identify issues and challenges they thought occurred by a smartphone. And they hit all, all of the things that psychologists were saying, they nailed on you know, fatigue, tired, um, difficulties, concentration, poor school grades, uh, uh, relationship deterioration. They hit all of these markers themselves. What was really interesting was in follow-up discussions, we were asking sort of things, well, if you know this is a problem, why don't you just switch off? And well, no, we can't do that, we can't. However, the kicker was that while they weren't keen to turn off the devices and get away from it, even though they knew they were problematic, they were perfectly okay if their parents told them to, because if you're 15 or 16, you're not going to go out on a limb and say, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm turning off my device because it's unhealthy for me. That's not what I, you know, you know. but if you guys say, yeah, I have to turn off my advice. My parents said, I have to. So they were, so they were very prepared to step away if they were led that way rather than take the initiative because in the eyes of their peers, you don't want to be seen to be, you're more, you're more readily, readily prepared to blame your parents than to say, Oh, it's my own initiative. Cause I know it's not healthy. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really fascinating. So the power of parenting is don't, parents should not, you know, we know peers are important in the lives of adolescents, but so too are uh, our adult role models, particularly parents, but in the absence of parents, it's often a a teacher or a coach and, and adults have a huge influence on those decisions more so than I think we give ourselves credit for.
0: Mm -hmm, mm And I love maybe. (laughs) Sorry. I was going to say that I remember reading years ago that in child development that, you know, kids are looking to parents to help provide those boundaries. That sort of gives them that sort of sense of safety. And I guess the technology is just this new thing on the block that parents need to sort of develop that skill set around, isn't it? Look, absolutely. And, and isn't it
2: just great that this, this is the kids themselves. So how old were so no, no, they? i 12. No, they were a little, little, little bit old, 14, 15. Old, 14, 15. And, you know, here they are themselves going, oh, look, I don't really have what it takes to sort of manage this. Can someone help me? Mum, Dad. So, again, for people who are listening, I think here's your permission. Your own children are secretly sort of harbouring a wish that you would kind of, you know. I and I am sure many of
1: your listeners could attest to the fact that as their children get older, the children will say, like my minor network, look, when this was happening, why didn't you tell me to stop? You know, it's mm-hmm. your fault that I have this situation now because you didn't do the proper parenting when you were when I was 16. It's like, whoa, you know, unexpectedly. Oh, I, you know, I didn't know that you felt that way at 16 because you wouldn't listen to me. But so I think that the the message is that there is a degree of power in in positive parenting.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that, Michael, I think that'll really resonate with a lot of parents who are listening, who are like, okay, you know, even though maybe underneath my adolescent is (laughs) giving me all that sort of aggressive kind of, you know, interpersonal sort of communication, but underlying it all, they still really need me to set those boundaries.
1: And they're they're gonna tell you, they're gonna tell you they hate you, um, which is part and parcel of being an ally. They're gonna hate you no matter what you do. So you may as well do something to the benefit of their mental health, um, and let them hate you for that. And then long term they'll come to realize that you did it for their benefit.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then I feel like there's so many things we can sort of talk about, but I just kind of want to circle a bit about two you know, the experience-dependent wiring of our brain. And we've definitely talked about theory of mind, but now just let's unpack a little bit about how we actually sort of develop those interpersonal um, relational skills and what might be happening when you've got a little one and then moving into adolescence who actually is finding it more rewarding to be with a screen than with other people.
2: So, so look some really basic stuff that I'm looking at at the moment and, and I've actually done in my own research, we've got a paper um, under, under review at the moment on this is even just looking at basic things like understanding emotions. So when you walk into a room, again, if you have good theory of mind, you should be able to read the room. Yeah, you know, that's what that means. You've got an idea, are people sort of a bit, you know, struppy? or are they a bit tired? Are they actually really relaxed? Are they laughing? You know, what's going on here? So one of the bits of research that's been done quite a lot in the context of screens um, is actually being able to read emotions on a face. So no verbal cues, just what is this person thinking or feeling? And what we're seeing is that that's being driven down. So the more screen time you have, the worse your ability is to read emotion in faces because that is an experience. You need mum and dad or or whoever your caregivers are to look at you as a little bubba, to look at that sort of magic 30 centimetres that they're born with to start off with and all through your life to be, Um, actually displaying emotions giving some idea of what that means um, having people learn to read you it gets very sophisticated because you know some emotions are masking emotions she said with gritted teeth (laughs) I'm fine I'm fine (laughs) That sort of thing. How does a child learn to pick up lying? How do they learn to pick up that someone is presenting one emotion but actually feeling another? It gets very difficult and it gets very um, very problematic. So we know, for example, that in kiddies with autism, and indeed, adults with autism, this is one of the big problems that they have. They, they, you know, they have a social communication deficit, and one of that, one of one way that that manifests is an inability to read emotions. So they run themselves into all sorts of trouble because they're not picking up on nuances <laughs> and all those shades of grey. So uh, again, if your brain isn't getting the experience of, you know, in real life talking back and forth. Um, reciprocal communication lots of emotional display figuring that out you can't learn it and you can't possibly expect a child to just pick that up they're not going to it's experience dependent and I think Mike wrote a bit in a whole chapter about some of the sort of experience dependent things that our brain needs in order to develop those skills and honestly social skills and particularly the social skills that are important in your own culture all of this is experience dependent. So you remove the experience, you remove the ability. It's that simple.
1: And importantly, you can't get that experience in a virtual world, because no amount of high definition pixelation picks up the subtle nuances of the face as it happens in real time. And so, um, because there are some who might "Well, you know, people are are communicating by this this sort of medium," that doesn't do it. It is it is nowhere near. Um, as efficient as being face to face with someone and reading those emotions.
2: And we, we know this even from the lockdown. So, our psychologists mm-hmm. in training were forced, obviously, to use telehealth and Zoom. And I'm not saying there isn't a place for that. Obviously, well, mm-hmm. it's just sometimes it's just necessary, it's the best you've got. But they all spoke about that. So, you know, when you're a psychologist and you're in a room with someone, you really need to be very in tune with what they're saying, but what's the meaning behind that, what's the emotion that's going on, and you've you've really got to do this kind of almost magic dance of putting all of that together to come up with, you know, what's going on with this person, what are the sort of questions I need to ask, what's hitting a mark or, or perhaps poking a bear, something I need to follow up, something I need to back away from. And our psychologists all said just how awful and exhausting this was over zoom because you don't have the full body language you don't have the full person you don't have the 3d view you've only got the 2d view it removes so much so it's that in real life interaction that's absolutely crucial across brain development so kids can learn basically how to communicate with other with other people
1: you know a really good thing for your listeners if they want to really see how important that that whole face mechanism is Uh, there's a they can go to YouTube (laughs) here we are talking about technology don't use that (laughs) go to to YouTube and just put in the still face experiment Mm. Um, and you might be aware but for your listeners it's a really great um, experiment where ostensibly you have an infant who's engaging with the parent presumably mother because it's female and they're going back and forth in the repartee that occurs Mm, pardon me losing my voice in the repartee that occurs naturally. And then the mother's instructed to turn away, come back and have a completely still face and show no emotion, no expression, do not engage with that infant. And it doesn't take long, very, it doesn't take, it only takes a matter of seconds before you start seeing distress. And so the brain is designed to read facial cues, to read emotion. And when it doesn't have that feedback mechanism, if you're an infant, it can be very stressful. And as you grow Uh, from infancy through toddlerhood to childhood, the less and less you have of that, the more problematic it will become for you long-term.
0: And I think just to add to that study, Michael, then it sort of goes on to show how the child will have that distressed moment, but then essentially just starts to disengage and and just not even want to, can try to work to get their mum's attention. And, And I think the added piece of technology of that is when we do hold their phone, a parent's face is often blank as they're flicking through. So a child's looking to look at their parent and their parent says,
1: I, I saw something the other day that, again, not to critique parents because I, I don't. No, know.
0: no. I mean, I'm, I've been guilty of it as well. It's, it's, it's the technology. Guilty of it. I was, I was
1: out for my morning walk, and as um, I'm known to, I'm walking fairly briskly. And again, for your listeners, don't take this wrong because it sounds creepy, but I love watching children. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, walking, I'm walking along, and I see um, a parent pushing a pram, and as I'm approaching, I can see the infant looking up like looking up in this sort of look at me face that i recognize but what mom has she has a device on her pram that holds her phone in place so she doesn't have to hold so as she's pushing her pram, she's engaging with the phone and completely missing out on the opportunities for that child and that child is you can see in that child's face there's almost a sort of sense of look at me mm-hmm. and it's, it's those types of things it's those little things that we don't think about or take for granted that there's a continual feedback mechanism with infants and children looking at adults and parents. And I, I've seen this you know, during the course of the pandemic when children often didn't have to wear masks, but adults did. And if you remove the mask and a child saw your face, like, oh my gosh, a face. I haven't seen one of those in such a long time. So you can't underestimate how important the experience of being with real people in real time is in terms of all aspects of, of neurodevelopment and by association, social emotional development
2: and look if we cycle back to the title of the book um one of the so I'm running around giving um, presentations to doctors at the moment so several hundred doctors at various conferences and it's just you know every time you do this like we we work in sort of ivory tower research and research is always several years behind the coal face. so every time you do this you get doctors running up to you going oh you think that's bad you should see what I'm seeing <laughs> it's so much worse I even got a, a rant from a child psychologist the other day who said oh my god I read your book and I was nodding the whole way through it's actually way worse than what you're making out it's so much worse than that. he went off on, anyway. But suffice to say, um, one of the doctors, one of the pediatricians, in fact, was saying that she's now taken to spying on her patients because she said, I'm getting these referrals, question mark autistic. Okay, so the little baby comes in, they're 18 months old, or whatever. And she said, They're babies. She said, They're so young, question mark autistic from the GP. And so she said, All I do, the first thing I do is I have them come into the waiting room and then I watch them. And she said, honestly, the number of times that they plonk the baby down in the carrier or whatever, and the parents then sit on the phone, ignore the baby, scroll, scroll, scroll. And so she said, the first thing I do now before I even start investigating whether or not this could be autism, uh, is I start talking to the parents about the importance of reciprocal communication play. put down that damn phone, I want you to start actually paying attention to your baby, let's get some back and forth stuff here, let's do this for a few months come back and we'll review, you know so I mean it's really interesting that already at the coalface you've got doctors and pediatricians picking up on this. And going, look, before we start investigating autism, let's let's just knock out the obvious that um, perhaps the the baby's experience is not conducive to them developing theory of mind emotion motion recognition, social communication skills that looks like autism, but actually, if we give them that experience, they'll start to develop in a more normal fashion. So, uh, you know, fascinating that that's already happening at the coalface.
1: This has helped framing our thoughts around the second edition.
0: Yes, yeah. Well, it's so interesting you say that because um, so I had a big paediatric practice when I lived in the States, seeing mainly like children on the spectrum, learning disabilities, attention deficit. And so then we moved back to Australia. I started doing some, some private clinical work here. And I was quite surprised at the number of children who actually were diagnosed with autism, yet they didn't, you know, they had nice affects or good reciprocal communication. Um, so then when I was sort of exploring a little bit more, Parents were they're very obsessive around their technology. They're very restricted, and you know, with those behaviours, and it's all around their sort of technology. And and I found the same when I actually started doing my own study um, that all these children that were coming in, as you know, as part of um, you know part of my study, who had diagnoses of autism, and I was like, where where is it? But the parents were sharing. Well, they're very restricted in their behaviors, they just want their technology all the time. And they have these huge meltdowns if I take it away. So they'd come into you know the university in the waiting room, and yet, the first thing would be handed would be their, their technology. It was their their safety, it became their it what they were kind of co regulated with was, was yeah. with the device that they were losing those abilities to actually co regulate and lo- losing those interpersonal communi- communication skills. So, um. Yeah, yeah, so it's it, very interesting. It was the Romanian psychologist,
2: Marius Zamfier, who first coined the term virtual autism. Mm. And what he did was very simple. He, you know, he's a clinical psychologist. He's not really a researcher by trade, but he's almost been forced <laughs> because he's so concerned about this. So he started publishing some of his longitudinal data. Um, but yeah very similar he was having all of these referrals for kids with so-called autism um, so he kicked them off the screens kicked them outside you know told the, yeah starting to do some really intensive parental training you know take them off everything Let, let's deal with the extinction burst let's deal with the meltdown but we're taking them off everything three months um, they come back and they're no longer autistic or they no longer meet the criteria for autism so it was very simple. I mean, in many ways, his research and and he, you know, this is this is where we that this is where that term virtual autism has come from, mm-hmm. um, and so now you've got an almost how do we separate the sheep from the goats? Mm-hmm. I guess the issue from a brain development point of view that we don't know the answer to, and both Mike and I I think are intrigued by this, is okay if you let that drift for ten years. So your patients, for example, um, Marius's patients, every you know the paediatricians. What, you know, in 10 years' time, do we actually have an autistic kid or a brain or has the brain actually changed in that direction and now it's going to be very difficult to unchange it? We just don't know the answer to that. We have no idea. Um, so, I, you know, that that's, I guess, the, the next bit that becomes interesting as, as time rolls on to, to what extent is this remediated or can be remediated mm. or can be helped. Um, how long is perhaps too long to make a permanent change that can't be undone? Or you know, we just don't know the answers to these questions at the moment.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I certainly got the sense from reading the book that, and love to hear all, your both your thoughts on is that there's almost you know, that the all allied health and education almost need to be part of their intake and assessment process. So not just even at the paediatrician or you know the GP officers, that we all need to start having these part of our intake is have those questions around screen use and the kind of screen use that's being, that's being used and have that as part of our, our whole sort of therapy approach that we need to address this as part because it is such, It's the literature seems to be really linking it to having such, you know, an issue on on mental health and, and other parts of, you know, sort of development.
1: To, to coin that phrase, you know, it takes a village. And I think at the end of the day, given the fact that technology is so pervasive and, you know, it's part and parcel with education these days. So it has to be a, a community sort of focus. It's not just parenting. It's what, what do we do within schools? What do we do outside of schools? What, how are clubs using it? You know, there's so many ways that technology is part and parcel with a, a young person's life. It's just not in the home. So your, your point is a good one. And it, it's, a, I think we haven't seen that sort of, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? We haven't seen that sort of integration of an approach looking at technology use in a holistic fashion. We've isolated, okay, well, they're using it at home, they're using it at school, but, you know, we compound overall screen time in schools by having devices. I, I can't tell you how many times I've driven past a school and I, I, or preschool and I see a billboard that says, you know, all of our four-year-olds have iPads and so what why like what what's the point and I think that's part of part, part of what we're trying to get across in the book too is that this is something that is goes far broader than beyond parenting you know parenting is the first port of call but you know teachers act in, in local parentheses you know in the place of parents in, in school so the point is as you said it's so important that we have to look at it in a holistic fashion and say from every angle what can we do to support uh, young the healthy development of young children, which again, if we are kind of coming full circle in some respects too, the I, one of the things that Rachel and I discussed when we were putting book is we don't think we can say to people at times, you know, it's very difficult. We're not Luddites, we're not anti-technology. Mm-hmm. But what we have to do is shift the balance. We we have decades of research, not Rachel and I, but well, We do, I'm a bit older, but (laughs) decades of research in child child development and and, uh, even neurodevelopment. We know a lot more now from the last 25 plus years. So we have a lot of research that that tells us what children and adolescents need for all measures of healthy development. So we have to shift the balance. So the balance isn't, you know, so much with technology and all the other. That technology should be on the periphery, not central to the lives of young Mm -hmm. people. And that's going to take a community of of practitioners, whether they be psychologists, pediatricians, educators, heaven forbid, politicians, you know, get in there and say, look, we need to look at this. Because I'd argue that technology is probably one of the most pervasive mental health issues Mm. of our time. Mm.
2: Mike, I loved your, I, you hadn't, I hadn't heard you use this before, but the, the analogy sort of with driving a car. I mean, you think about that. We don't let our kids drive a car till they're 16. They actually have to undergo a significant amount of training and examination and, you know, are you ready? Are you, are you cognitively capable? Do you have the correct motor responses that you can, you know, manage all this? And it's fascinating, isn't it? When you, you need a licence to drive a car, you need practice, you need training, you need assistance, and we don't let you do it before a certain age range because we know... If we put a ten-year-old on the road, you're going to have a massive problem. Their brain, their motor skills, their frontal lobe development—all of that sort of stuff—just not up to par with being able to drive. And so, and you know, then you've got the Silicon Valley people banning their kids from it to a certain age. <laughs> you just think, mm-hmm. maybe we need a license for a smartphone? I don't know, but isn't that interesting that we're we're happy to accept that with cars and driving, but. This, you know, this this technology, social media, all the rest of it's become absolutely ubiquitous at, at continually younger ages, continuously that's, that's the younger crust. ages. Down and down and down. Down and down, and they're just not capable of managing themselves, um, you know, using this sort of stuff.
0: Yeah. But I think the tricky thing that's happened in Australia is, is the fact that it seems to have just, for some reason, I'm not sure how that all happened, but this idea of like every child having technology in the classroom and as you say you saw like what you said like a preschool saying that the kids have you know where um where did i'm not sure how that all come to be where felt that you know every student needed to have their own device
1: there's there's it's in the curriculum in some measure the curriculum where four-year-olds are being taught to code they need Mm. to be taught to code and Mm. and i i pose this question to so many people it's like okay so Do any of us honestly believe that the skill set a child might learn now at four is going to be of any use to them when they're 14, given how rapidly technology advances? Moreover, in learning how to code, which will probably become obsolete next year or the year after in in that fashion, what are they missing out on? What what are the things they're missing out on? So in the literature around um, technology use in schools, uh, and I've... Any presentations, even with politicians, is pretty uh, robust in noting that there isn't any substantive literature that suggests that technology use actually enhances outcomes. Nor does it does it. Um, nor, in fact, or the other argument, it, with, if you don't use it, children get left behind. That's just so fallacious. It's 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 laughable. So I don't know how it became so um, uh, in. Uh, permeated education in this country the way it has, you know, to the point where, you know, a previous government, they had their education revolution was uh, laptops. laptops for everybody, which <laughs> mm-hmm. wasn't very revolutionary. That and, you know, uh, refurbishing town halls, which is more renovation than revolution. But that became their their mm. uh, their protocol for all of their political slogans. So, you know, education revolution, everyone gets a laptop. That just was a monumental waste of money. And there was no evidence around why that was important. Um, So when you look at the literature around learning and Mm -hmm. psychology learning and learning outcomes, there isn't any evidence that says that kids need to be with devices. In fact, most of the evidence that I've looked at says there isn't any use really, there isn't any real pertinent use or any need for children in primary school to be on devices at all, Mm -hmm. at all. And in high school, only for research purposes. Uh, Now, I'm sure some of your listeners they might be saying well no they get a fine you know we can if you read the book i make reference to the studies and things like that. its actually just the opposite even the oecd you know in 2015 said um, there was they looked at all of the countries in you know the Pisa that they do the international testing in in mm-hmm. scientific aptitude math uh, maths and literacy you know and Australia is, is slowly moving down the ranks you know so i think last time the Pisa findings came out they were 14th to 15th in the OECD countries, um, and and it's a great makes for a great political soundbite because the politicians jump on board and they say, well, you know, we have to do something to raise standards, which I think is kind of oxymoronic. I've never come across an argument for lowering them, so we can go with that. But but at the end of the day, they like politicians might do they cherry pick so they they focus on peace and standings, but that same organization looked at technology use and internet use in OECD countries and found a really interesting, again, not suggesting causation, but countries that invested heavily in technology and internet use, part of their educated practice, routinely ranked in the bottom part of the findings. Those countries and or cities, because now they focus on places like Shanghai and, and Hong Kong, those areas that spend less time on devices, less time on the internet routinely do better, right? And Australia has invested in Australia spends more time on the internet on all of the OECD countries in that um, study than any other country um, in school. And so and anyone can download this. You can go to the OECD and you can get schools, technology and education and write. You don't even have to read the report. Just read the preface where ostensibly the director and I put this in the book says for all of investment, the end result is not positive. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just know personally when we moved back from the States, you know, my kids started um, well, started high school and um, and, and my son comes home and he's like, Mum, you know, we've, we've all got computers. And he goes, kids are watching movies in class. <laughs> and the teacher just up the top and, well, you know, he goes, he goes, I don't get it. <laughs> They're all playing Cod. <laughs> yeah, They're sitting around
2: the various... <laughs>
0: How, they, know, you know? they know how. I mean we struggle as adults to not be distracted and to pay attention and get our chart tasks done on, on, on our computers. So how do we expect our you know our kids to be able to sort of do of
1: interest in, in this conversation? There's a, a school here on the Sunshine Coast, and there are two are in Brisbane that have adopted uh, technologies called Yonder, which ostensibly, when in these are high schools, when kids arrive at school and they've got their phones. They have what amounts to like a a um, neoprene uh, pouch, you know, kind of like the material used for scuba uh, gear. They mm-hmm. put their phone in the pouch. They tap it on a pole as they school, and it locks the pouch, so they can keep their phone with them, but they can't open it. Now this, <laughs> well, because it's it, hilarious. Well, only because <laughs> the school has decided they don't want children using their devices in schools. Mm-hmm. Now I met with the principal uh, a couple of weeks ago talking about, and they instigated at the beginning of this year. Um, And he said, what's been really interesting is um, to our pleasant surprise and often uh, chagrin, we're seeing the same types of behaviors we saw years ago where, because kids are interacting with another. So we have, we have kids forming social bonds, but we have kids, you know, pushing each other around. And so, but they're actually engaging. He said a year ago, they just sat in the areas and just were on their devices. And so there are schools that are taking measures to not completely get rid of technology, but limit the exposure to devices and things in the school context to kind of um, uh, take away some of that extra time the kids are spending on those things. And I know, again, two schools in Brisbane, one up here, and by all accounts, even the kids are, are finding it beneficial. Uh, mm-hmm. those, those who are in their senior year, not as much, because they've had you know four or five years mm-hmm. of, of unrestricted access. But the kids who arrive this year, they just see, it, oh, this is just part of the school. Put it away, take it, on, we go home. And this meets the needs of the parents because for a lot of parents, the device is that security blanket of uh, you know transport to and from school. So I, I think schools, some schools are taking it on board. Um, but I do, you know, coming back to what we were saying earlier, it is a, a community problem, uh, not just one that's found in the home.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Most definitely. Definitely. So aware of the time, but I just, I just wanted to touch on this, this other last topic. That you kind of put out there and then we can maybe talk about some what are some things that people can actually do so you you talk about uh, the biophilia hypothesis in the book and i thought that was kind of really interesting because i think you know people who listen are very familiar of the polyvagal theory so i think um i think you know if you could just explain a little bit of what that is Absolutely. So look, um, this, this
2: stems from Roger Ulrich's uh, work in 1984. So he published a very interesting finding, quite a simple one. He looked at recovery time in hospitals um, amongst patients who had a view of nature versus those who just had a view of, you know, buildings and all the rest of it and found that people who simply had a tree or some greenery outside their window um, got better quicker, asked for less pain medication, a whole range of different things. So he sort of just put this out there and said, that's weird. <laughs> what's, what's going on here? Anyway, that set off a raft of research and probably too much that we could possibly cover even in a full podcast of its own. But essentially, <coughs> the biophilia suggests that well, we, are, we are a cog in a very large wheel, essentially, Okay. We are connected to, we interact with all things in our nature. We are we are products of evolution effectively, okay? So if you start to replace those um, natural connections, if you wish, with artificial ones, it just doesn't work. We spoke about Zoom and 2D and, and emotion, uh, emotion recognition and communication, et cetera. Think about also if you start eating processed pretend foods as opposed to real foods. We, we know that's a disaster for most people. In terms of outside green space and and the way that that's potentially interacting with the brain and brain development, we look at something we call attention restoration theory, which seems to be one of the bigger, um, you know, one of the theories that has more um, research supporting it. And that's simply that, um, you know, looking at being in natural spaces, looking at nature, it provides almost a reset. Some people have called it a soft fascination. So you look at trees, you look at the ocean, whatever, you gaze into a fire. All of those wonderful things that we know seem to be inherently relaxing for human beings. So it sort of resets your brain. It calms it all down and it helps. When we look at sort of angles and lines and buildings and all the rest of it, it doesn't do the same thing at all. Okay. So, and, and even there's been some research even looking at photographs, believe it or not, even though I sort of poo-hooed that earlier. But even looking at photographs of landscapes is more relaxing for people mm. than looking at photographs of buildings. So there's something going on here. The brain is kind of drawn because we've evolved in this environment. It's hardly surprising when you give it some thought, but the brain has evolved to, you know, be a part of nature, be connected to nature. The body has evolved also to eat natural products and not something that's ripped out of a packet. That's the old advice, isn't it? (laughs) If your grandma doesn't recognize it, don't eat it. If you have to rip open a packet, don't eat it. Um, Best something that you've picked off the shelf or what have you, or off the tree even better. Um, so yeah, biophilia is just an idea that look, we are all part of, um, an ecosystem here. And if we try to thwart that by putting in, you know, um, sort of fake connections, it doesn't work. Same with social media. Even what Mike was saying before, how many friends do you actually have on social media? Most of them are fake, you know, they're not real. And so it doesn't provide the same level of, um, Mental well-being, calming, psychological, positive psychological forces is, is something that's in real life. It's actually real. So it's a little bit hard to get your head around. It's very philosophical for scientists. So I must admit I, I'm somewhat nervous about biophilia. I much prefer attention restoration <laughs> theory <laughs> because as a hardcore scientist sort of thing, um, you know, we like to be very reductionist in our thinking and that's to our fault, I think. Um, so biophilia is really taking a big step back and going, guys, You're all part of a bigger system. Don't try and muck with the system. When you do, things will go wrong. And anyone who studied biology, as I did in grade 12, will probably remember the the stories of, you know, bringing in the cane toad, for example, and what that did. When you muck with the system, things will go badly for you. The system is there for a reason. Um, So it's a little bit, I don't know, Star Wars, may the force be with you. That's why I find it a a little bit sort of nerve-wracking, but (laughs) it's been very difficult for scientists to operationalize. So scientists out there who are listening are probably thinking, oh, this is sounding a bit, you know, out there. And it is. And it is is a bit of a problem to try and study, if you like, biophilia. But we've certainly got some very good research that shows that people who are, are raised and have lots of exposure to nature have better levels of well-being, Mm -hmm. higher levels of psychological function or positive function. We've now got massive, a lot in Canada, actually, I noticed. Lower blood pressure. All sorts of things. And this has actually gotten so so well supported that we've now even got entire medical services um, prescribing Mm -hmm. nature. So when I go to the doctors, I actually show them some of the nature prescriptions that have been devised by um, a Scottish province called Shetlands. Most people are probably familiar with Shetland ponies. But they've actually come up with nature prescriptions because we've actually got really good evidence to demonstrate that time spent in nature helps with blood pressure, well-being, depression, rumination, which is an interesting one, and not just in terms of self-report. They've actually taken um, biological markers, so markers of cortisol, the stress hormone. They've shoved people in MRIs and, you know, machines that go bing and have a look at what sort of happens in their brain. And exposure to nature is making changes at the brain level and at the biochemical level. So um, doctors are getting really interested in this. And as I said, you've now got entire provinces Um, prescribing nature, got a problem, get out and about for this minimum amount of time every day of the week. And I'll give, I'll give your listeners the answer. Now it appears to be 30 to 60 minutes a day. And after that, um, the benefits appear to peak and then plateau. So once you get to about 300 minutes a week, you don't seem to be able to get much more benefit out of that. But it seems to suggest we need a minimum of time out in nature to get the best possible psychological well-being, and indeed even physical um, stress, blood pressure kind of markers as well uh, in terms of, yeah, of, of, of getting a, a, the best possible benefit.
0: Mm. Excellent. So I've just bought 57 acres out in um, Conraday. So. Yeah. I, am like, <laughs> and, and I, I yes.
1: know Going back to Canada shortly it's going to be a very pleasant time because most Canadians are sitting around campfires right now in the summer going life is good.
0: Yes 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 perfect. Well thank you for sharing that about nature and you do talk about that in the book as well. Mm-hmm. And I the, the we'll finish on with the, um, the last, one of the studies that I think uh, was at um, Yalda. Yeah, yeah, was it? Yeah, yeah, he did a study. So if you just talk about that, because, again, that's nature and the yeah, look, of screen time and autism, I think absolutely. that's just nice. nice
2: very, very similar to Marius Zambias' research. And in fact, probably not quite as comprehensive as his, quite frankly, but all she did was she took a bunch of kids, um, she kicked them off phones, <laughs> took them out to a nature camp. I think it was only for a matter of days, wasn't it? Five nice days, nice. something like that. And um, it, she did a pre-post measure of their emotion recognition skills and a, and a range of other things. And surprise, surprise, even with just a few days off the screens, those teenagers improved. And it's exactly what Mike was talking about before with that school that locked down the phones. Within a very short period of time, people start engaging like normal human beings again. And you know they put the phones away, they stop all that, they start engaging with each other, and you start to see more normal development sort of behavior, so jostling and you know joking and, and actually just interacting with other people. So that was a very, very simple um, intervention. You're now seeing interventions like that um, in countries where they have particular issues with screen time, like Japan, um, Korea. I think, you know, you've got that locked in syndrome, all sorts of funny things. And they're taking it a little bit more seriously. They're taking the kids out to sort of nature camps for a month (laughs) and removing screens. And I think you can go and find a couple of documentaries looking at these morose children walking into the the camp all upset and, um, you know, sort of devastated that their screens have been Taken and of course a month later, um, all of their cognitive and social functions have have improved um, dramatically, which does give us some, I suppose, optimism that perhaps these things can be reversible even at the teenage level. Mm. Um, so yeah, that that does give us some hope. But yeah, Uls was just one of the earlier ones who um, published her work, just looking at very very basic nature based sort of interactions and, and how that improved human functioning and cognition.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So any other last bits of advice or any last comments you'd like to, what we haven't talked about, that you'd like to
1: share? I think we've covered just about everything. Again, for me, it's important for parents not to beat themselves up, Mm -hmm. um, but to look for shifting a balance away from devices into other things that we know um, children and adolescents need for healthy development, which means being with other people, being outdoors, engaging in different activities that don't require you to click anything or or put a thumbs up or get a happy face
2: um maybe one thing I would mention Joanne and feel free to delete this from the final <laughs> podcast but we did devote an entire chapter and I only mentioned it because I've actually been specifically asked to come and give a talk about it to Splendour in the Grass in a few weeks time down at Byron and that's the potential impact that all of this is having on sexual development as well now I know that seems a bit tangential and, and obviously we're talking about teenagers and young adults but again, it comes back to that if you're not good at picking up emotions and body language and you're not good at relating and you're not good at understanding, what is that potentially doing mm. to our sexual development? Which um, you know, and, and we're now seeing, I don't know about other countries, but in Australia, we've got um all sorts of, you know, unfortunately high-profile cases of Uh, sexual interaction's gone wrong let's put it that way and you know this has become a bit of a talking point in Australia in particular and it's becoming highly problematic and I just think you know taking a step back from all of the um, you know socio-political stuff around it what happens when you've got two people who are perhaps not very good at reading each other's signals and so much of sexual development and sexual interaction is not verbal I mean it just isn't Um, So I think there's some really interesting challenges ahead, again, uh, and, 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 you know, not just in terms of that interaction going wrong, but even girls in particular, and I I focused a whole chapter on girls on this because I think there's some real issues looking at, um, you know, digital media, pornography, sexual development, that sort of thing that's particularly affecting females. Um, their lack of confidence as well in negotiating sexual boundaries is is really becoming a bit of an issue for um, young adults at the moment. And and this is important. And as as we can see, it's playing out in our courtrooms at the moment and often, you know, results that aren't considered to be very satisfactory to either party, really. So, um, yeah, that's not something we've touched on. It is a little bit tangential, but I think it is something that we need to keep an eye on uh, as as years develop. And it's interesting that I've been asked specifically Specifically to go and speak to a bunch of young people, uh, young adults in particular, about this and what social media is potentially doing to their sexual development and their sexual skills, which sounds incredible, but it's 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 creating some problems.
0: No, Rachel, I'm so glad you brought you brought that up because mm-hmm. you do have um, that chapter d- dedicated, and it really is a very interesting read. And I think, you know, particularly for young girls in terms of your yeah, body image and yeah. all that around that. But then as you say, in terms of you yeah, know reading those nonverbals for 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 relationships and how you actually sort of develop those relationships. And and I even say I have two daughters. Um, Twenty-three and twenty-five, and having conversations with them. And I was a parent who said no; they didn't get a phone until they were they were well and truly into high school. And they grew up in the U.S. and then moved here years ago. But um, that I even have conversations to them, and I know those sort of subtleties of like, how do they know if 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 they're being flirted with, and and that appropriate boundary of that, and and there's so much, there's just yeah, there's so much around all that that I that is really very different rules now um compared to like we we're sort of growing up and i think added on those rules are the yeah those difficulties because some of those relationships of those, those opportunities for those interpersonal sort of experiences are, are have been lessened. so no i think um i think for people listening that it is a really really good chapter to read and um and actually my i have a 19 year old son so it spurred us actually having a nice sort of conversation about some of those things that you bring up in in that chapter so um, hats off to you for bringing because it is a, a bit of a tougher topic to kind of talk
1: about
2: it is. And I'm, I must admit, I'm giving a very explicit um, presentation.
1: <laughs> I've seen ex- some of the slides.
2: <laughs> far more, far more <laughs> explicit. We're really getting down to tin Um And it, it is fascinating, particularly that influence of porn and expectations and what are reasonable expectations and then what's unreasonable uh, and all the rest of it. And, and I've already uh, I, yeah, sent the slides to Mike. He knows nothing. He's too old these days. but <laughs> I sent it to some of my younger students and they said, oh, well, you know the other stuff that's going on at the moment. And I thought, well, no, I didn't know that. Thank you very much. So, you know, just some of those incredible expectations, particularly on young women to perform uh, all sorts of uh, rather fascinating sexual acts and and their ability to say no and to say this is actually not okay and I'm not comfortable with this is is being, you know, thwarted. And, yeah, you're quite right. The rules now are vaguer. And what's interesting is we've got appear to have less ability and social skills to be able to navigate that. So you're going into uncharted waters as as not a very experienced captain. And mm-hmm. and that's I think that's a really interesting social shift that we've not seen before. Once upon a time we had rules that were probably too strict. You know, thou shalt not have sex before marriage. We don't need mm-hmm. the pendulum to swing it back that far um but yeah the rules have become very blurred the boundaries have become very blurred and then you've got young people with poorer theory of mind poorer social skills being asked to navigate those rules which um you know is just a recipe for disaster
0: and that's what we're seeing over and over again and I think in you sort of say too the expectations around what you actually see on the media and what is actually intimate relationship between some people actually care about that that those those things are very hard for younger people to actually navigate so um, yeah.
2: And that's, that's, what our, that's what our sex counselors are telling us. That they all know how to do, you know, do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. That bit's easy. They've all got the docking procedures because they've been watching. <laughs> what they don't know how to do is build intimacy. And in yeah. fact, people are even coming to counseling to go. I don't know how to build a connection with this person. So then we can, yeah, have a have a really, um, I suppose, intimate discussion about sexual needs and boundaries. And, and I don't know how to do that. And so that's, it's, it's young people appearing for that, which even for some of our sex counsellors is actually quite challenging because that's not what they've been dealing with over the last several years. It's about what bit goes where and what bit feels good and how do you do that. And all of a sudden they're being asked to give more relationship counselling as opposed to sex counselling, which I
1: think is a really interesting shift.
0: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And
1: just piggybacking on uh-huh. what Rachel said too about the theory of mind. Theory of mind is very, very mm, important when it comes absolutely. to things like consent mm. and understanding someone else's feelings. So um, it, that chapter, that, really that part of the book is really important.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So to our listeners, we will put a, a link to um, <clears throat> into uh, Michael and Rachel's book and, um, and we'll put contact details. So if people want to contact you directly, that, that will be in there um as well. And the book is very, it's very readable. I think you've made it very um very accessible to to people to 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 follow through and read the content.
1: So that yeah, was give, one of the intentions. Yes. <laughs> Reader friendly.
0: Yes, very, very so thank you so much for your time for you both. Um, it's been a wonderful conversation. I've um you know really enjoyed and the opportunity to meet you both and, and to share this I think very timely um, information. Thank you very much. Thank you so much
1: for your time. Mm -hmm.
0: I hope everyone really enjoyed this episode. I'm sure you all agree that the evidence shows that there is a significant impact of screen time on mental health, brain maturation, and physical development. We know that the technology is here to stay, but the evidence indicates we need to establish guidelines about its use. There are so many aspects from today's discussion we can unpack from a polyvagal perspective. Just one I will mention today, but we'll discuss further in another episode, is self-regulation. We as humans develop neural systems for self-regulation via co-regulation with a safe other. It is the experience of being engaged and connected with another safe human that builds the neural connections necessary for self-regulation. Engaging with devices blocks this process. I will include links to purchase Becoming Autistic in the show notes and on the Safe and Sound Protocol podcast Facebook page. You'll also find links to Rachel and Michael's research pages to learn more about their areas of research and other books they have published. I'd love to hear from you, so email me at joanne at integratedlistening.com.au or post a message on the Safe and Sound Protocol podcast Facebook page. If you like this episode, please share, share, share. Take care, Joanne. If you'd like to learn more about the Safe and Sound Protocol in Australia and New Zealand, please contact Integrated Listening Australia. The website is integratedlistening.com.au and for the rest of the world please contact Unite Integrated Listening at integratedlistening.com. I'm just going to do